1: Hello, everyone. It's Heather. Happy last week of 2022. We got next year in our sights. It is almost here. We hope wherever you're at, you're staying safe and warm and you're not impacted by any of these travel delays or any of these weather events. But if you are, we wish you good luck in uh, getting back home safe and soon. This week, we're bringing you an all new best of episode where where we're covering the most notorious trials. So you're going to hear clips from the Menendez brothers, Ethan Couch, the affluenza teen, Ted Bundy, and Amanda Knox cases. All of these are cases that we were really able to dive in. I was able to put my legal brain to use. People always ask, why did you go to law school? I'll tell you why. So I can host a podcast, dive into these trials, and come back and tell you what really happened. And I think in all of these cases, we were really able to do that. The Menendez brothers definitely was one in the media. This is actually one of the cases that changed one of my deeply held uh, political, I guess, beliefs, the Ethan Couch case. If you haven't listened to that episode, it was a huge deal in the Dallas area because it happened locally here, but it made national news because it was the introduction of the affluenza defense, where they argued that this teen was so well off, he could not have been responsible for his actions because of how spoiled he was by his parents. So you'll hear a clip of us discussing what how effective that was and why someone would try to put forth a theory that way. We also talk about Ted Bundy. If you haven't caught it, we're on the Ted Bundy documentary on Tubi. We were recently interviewed as part of that. Well, our Ted Bundy coverage that you'll hear today is us talking about when Ted Bundy decided to represent himself and how well or not well that went. And finally, we have a clip from our episode on Amanda Knox. And we talk a little bit about comparative justice between the Italian judicial system in the United States and discuss how badly she was treated in the entire case, in all the trials she was in, as well as how badly she was treated in the media coverage. We thought it was important to cover that case because we had been fed a lot of things in the media that when you scrutinize the reality of what happened, it just wasn't true. So very fascinating for us to learn, and hopefully we're able to convey that to you in the clip you'll hear today. So this is an all-new best-of And we hope you enjoy it. We really appreciate all the love and support, all the listening throughout the year. We do have two live events this week on Patreon uh, tonight, December 28th at 8 p.m. Central. We're going to have our live Q&A where you can ask us top 20 upvoted questions. So ask us anything. And we'll also on Thursday, the 29th at 8 p.m. Central have our bonus content live stream. So you can head over to Patreon, sign up for that. And we'll have a poll for you all to decide what we will perform for you. But we really appreciate all the love and support all this year. We thank you so much. Again, we hope you have a restful, wonderful new year. We'll be back with part three of the mysterious death of Phoebe Handstruck next week, as well as back to regular programming. We wish you well for this new year. Happy new year. Thanks again for listening. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.
2: In August 1995, the second trial began. The judge from the first trial, Judge Stanley Weisberg, was also the judge for the second trial. In pretrial hearings, he granted a motion that severely limited what the defense was allowed to present as far as evidence of abuse, as the prosecution had deemed it irrelevant to the case. The cases were also tried before a single jury. So they're saying... It's irrelevant. It does not matter what these kids went through. We're only here to talk about the fact that they killed their parents. Correct. It doesn't matter what led up to that.
1: Yeah, or if you want to let any of this in, you have to lay a foundation and show us why it's relevant first. We're not just going to whole scale let this in. And it was sort of said at the time that Gil Garcetti was real pissed about – he was the head DA at the time and was real pissed that they lost
2: ostensibly. Oh, it was a – Consider just a legal shit show that they didn't manage to get a conviction on that.
1: Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, well, you know,
2: and he basically said, we're not losing this time. Yeah, we we will not lose. The prosecution successfully argued that some so-called source evidence, which is evidence that would have explained why the brothers might have had a fear of their parents, was cumulative or evidence that only serves to prove what had already been proven in court or lacking in foundation and therefore should not be admissible.
1: Yeah, so if you want to introduce something, you need to put somebody on the stand who can explain to testify and say, "Oh, well, you know, I robbed the bank because somebody was behind me with a gun." And then you go, "And now your honor, I would like to present exhibit A, which is video footage from the robbery that shows a person standing behind my client." So, you know, you you lay a foundation for why it's relevant. Okay. So a lot of it before they were going to say, we're going to call these witnesses. Well, what are these witnesses going to testify to abuse, abuse of who, what's going on? We don't know what you're talking about. Well, then you get Eric up there to say, I was abused by my parents. I was super scared for my life. And then you can say, your honor, we're now going to call witnesses that will testify to the very abuse my client talked about. Well, you can have two or four witnesses but when, that are all testifying about different things. But if you have... Eighty witnesses that are all testifying about the same thing—that's cumulative. You get to the point where the, you're like, okay, the jury already heard it. You're like, we get it, we get it.
2: So it doesn't strengthen the case by showing eighty people knew about this, or or, or saying this really did happen. It could strengthen the case, but uh,
1: apparently, under California evidentiary rules, you, a judge can strike something for being cumulative. Interesting. For judicial expediency, or you know, public policy reasons, or I don't know,
2: any number of reasons. The witnesses that were not allowed to testify included family and friends who would have testified to specific instances of abuse by Kitty and Jose, and experts who would have explained what effect the abuse might have had on Lyle and Eric. Additionally, the judge banned cameras from the courtroom this time, a major blow to courtroom transparency, but according to Judge Scheinberg, necessary to prevent the trial from becoming a media circus. With cameras banned, the prosecution took another tactic— Rather than focus on refuting the defense's claims of abuse, though they were severely limited, the prosecution's focus in the second trial was the absolute heinousness of the crime. They had enormous crime scene photos showing the damage the brothers had inflicted on their parents. With each claim by the defense, the prosecution questioned whether the way they were gunned down in their home was an appropriate response. That was pretty much a giant poster board, which... Of the crime scene photos.
1: Then you have another evidentiary objection you can do is that that you can allege that either side is putting something up just to horrify the jury or to get a reaction. And I 100 percent guarantee you that Leslie Abramson objected to that. I don't you know, I don't have the trial transcript or anything. And I'm sure Judge Weisberg said overruled because there was a little bit of judge D.A. collusion going on. Yeah. yeah. Because
2: they said we're not going to lose again. No. And he also did not like her. Nope. Lyle opted not to testify in the second trial. This became problematic when his attorney tried introducing evidence of the abuse. In order to introduce evidence properly, an attorney must lay a foundation as to why such evidence is relevant. With no testimony from Lyle about his parents' abuse and his unreasonable fear as a result, there was no relevant reason to include any further evidence on that theory. And even worse, the prosecutor said, He wants you to believe he was scared of his parents.
1: He didn't even get up and testify. <clears throat> not allowed to do that. Why didn't he testify? I don't know. I couldn't find why unless he was just over it. Maybe he's just like, I've been I don't know. Who gives I can't a shit fucking, Send me to jail? Yeah, yeah, I can't deal with this anymore. Yeah. There's something to be said for that. I mean I mean I wouldn't blame him if yeah. that's why or he was so, you know, embarrassed and ridiculed and pulled through the mud the
2: first time. Yeah. Well, Eric did testify and over the course of 7 days went into great detail about the alleged abuse. In addition, Brian Anderson, a cousin of Lyle and Eric, testified about severe physical abuse that the brothers suffered at the hands of Jose. Diane Vandermolen, who had also testified in the first trial, again took the stand. And recounted incidents of physical and verbal abuse by both Jose and Kitty. Andy Kano, also a cousin, testified that Eric confided to him that Jose was molesting him. Kano also testified that Eric always had bruises on his body. So there was some evidence of the abuse. It yeah. just wasn't as much as, as, much as, as much it was as... in the first one. Yeah. Several witnesses testified that when Jose was alone with one of his sons in the bedroom, no one was allowed to go near the bedroom. Dr. William Vickery a new psychologist that had been treating Eric in jail, testified that Eric suffered from an anxiety disorder that could affect his mental state. In addition, Dr. Wilson testified that Eric suffered from battered person syndrome, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, so he was still
1: getting help for his mental health issues once he was in jail.
2: Given all of this testimony directly suggesting various forms of abuse as to both Eric and Lyle, The trial court excluded some of the other proffered testimony as cumulative. Yeah. Once, I mean, it's like the judge would say, yeah, we get it. We get it. Yeah. We don't want to be here for 10 days hearing the same story story from a different person. Dr. Vickery was poised to testify at trial. He had collected several volumes of notes from his sessions with Eric, which he turned over to Leslie Abramson. Upon examination, Leslie told him that he had to cut out several parts – particularly any parts that referenced what sounded like premeditation. For instance, several weeks before the killing, Eric decided that he, quote, had to kill them. Yeah, these were not helpful to the defense. None of these notes. Which is why Abramson wanted Dr. Vickery to cut out these statements. He refused, citing medical ethics. She warned him that if he didn't, he would not be allowed to testify. Worried for his patient, Dr. Vickery agreed. A trial... Abramson called him as a witness and had him read from his notes. Yeah,
1: this is a pretty famous part of the second trial that it was not televised. Again, there's only courtroom sketches and then reports of what happened. <sighs> what if
2: it had been? Oh, it would be a fly on the wall. There is
1: photography. There's, there's
2: photos of it. And yeah, it's pretty dramatic. I would have loved to see her try and explain this away. Oh, yeah. Well, unfortunately for Abramson, an unabridged copy of Dr. Vickery's notes had been given to the prosecution already. As he was cross-examined prosecution pointed to the portions of the notes that had been removed. Under oath, Dr. Vickery had no choice but to admit that Abramson had forced him to remove those portions of his notes. The courtroom erupted and the judge called everyone back to order.
1: Yeah, the – uh, journalist that was in the audience at the time said it was
2: a madhouse that when I mean, that is a bombshell that gets huge. dropped that's something that's only on law and order in the movies. oh
1: seriously when the prosecutor goes okay dr Abr- or dr vickery why is this missing and he's like miss
2: abramson told me to yeah, cut it out that's it like, like <gasps> record scratch yes gasp and then cut to her just oh, to see her facial expression yeah because you know you're up shit creek at that point. You got to just own up to it. Yep. The jury was ushered out and Abramson was forced to own up to what she had done. There were calls by legal experts at the time for a full ethics investigation and whispers of disbarment. However, she hired lawyer Gerald L. Chaliff, who defended the Hillside Strangler and the Menendez brothers in connection with their Calabasas robberies. Apology, I think I had to call him Dr. Chaff or uh, the attorney Chaff earlier. <laughs> Chailiff, Chaff. Well. well, he represented her and did very well. And in 1999, the State Bar of California cleared her of any wrongdoing due to lack of evidence of misconduct. Yeah, I think it was How can that be? I think it's his, the Dr. Vickery's word against hers.
1: So did she claim I didn't tell him to take those out? I mean, I'm probably, if I was, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, you gotta, first of all, don't do it. Second of all, own up to it. I actually didn't look super far hard into this. It was 99, so I'm pretty sure probably none of this stuff would be digitized to see copies of it, but they have to prove just like anybody else that she did it. And if there's no evidence and you have a good enough defense attorney oh, that's hammering, 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 hammering and saying, really show exactly where my client did it and they can't
2: show it, then they may. It's just, he says, she said. Pretty much. Well, on March 20th, 1996, without the mound of evidence of abuse that was presented in the first trial, the jury found both Lyle and Eric guilty of first degree premeditated murder. The jury also found that Lyle and Eric committed multiple murders while lying in wait, a fact that increases their sentencing. The brothers were sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole.
1: And the judge did not give the juries the imperfect self-defense instruction because he said – there was not sufficient evidence to offer this to the jury. There's not sufficient evidence that they would have been in uh, felt an imminent threat of bodily so harm.
2: So, Voluntary manslaughter wasn't even on the table. Not for the judge. Yeah, he's a he not agree murder
1: or, or bust pretty much. And you have these crime scene photos and you have a defense attorney going, yeah, these guys shot their parents in the face. So, yeah. I mean, if your jury instruction says, do you believe beyond a reasonable doubt these people shot their parents in the face? You'd be like, yeah, I mean, that you had to.
2: Interesting, though, that at this point, these jurors had to have seen all of this in the media. Yeah, that's familiar with the first trial. There's no way that you're going to find someone unless they've been living out of the country for two years that doesn't know what's happened. So you already, even though it's not being presented in court. They know a lot of the stuff. And I was thinking that, too, is, you know, a lot of times when you have like a smaller town
1: or something, but something happens and everybody's heard about it, you just move to a different county or something.
2: In this case, this it, was worldwide. It don't matter where you go. They could have come. They could have gone to Omaha, Nebraska, and people still would have known exactly who they were. Shout out if you're listening from Omaha.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't have matter. Great
2: the Tarrant County DA's office did not take this horrific event lightly. They charged Ethan with four counts of intoxication manslaughter, a second degree felony punishable by two to 20 years in prison, and a $10,000 fine. He was also charged with two counts of intoxication assault. They took it very seriously. It was not as they should, the DA for them. And quite honestly, they're the only ones in this whole mess that didn't have their heads up their ass. The DAs
1: in this case are valiant efforts to try to do as much as they can despite
2: uh, high odds. There was arguably no question about the facts of what had happened. Ethan had been very intoxicated. He had been the one behind the wheel and his actions caused the violent and tragic deaths of four innocent people and injured two others. Ethan and his attorneys decided that he would plead guilty to the charges, but opted to have a hearing to determine his punishment. That's where this story went from a local tragedy to a national controversy. Judge Jean Boyd, who was to preside over the case had a reputation for seeking rehabilitation options for minors, or at least Caucasian minors. Because of this, prosecutors Richard Alpert and Riley Shaw knew the likelihood of Boyd certifying Ethan to stand trial as an adult was slim to none. Rather than seek this, the prosecution decided to focus their efforts on convincing Judge Boyd to sentence Ethan to a Texas Youth Corrections facility. You try to get as best as you can, you know, do the best with the judge that you have. Yeah. And she had a reputation for, above all else, she wanted to rehabilitate certain teens. And they knew he very much well fell into this category. Mm-hmm. But she could have decided he could have stood trial as an adult. Oh, for sure. Also, question. Was there no jury because he's pleading guilty? Correct. He pled, so they didn't need a jury. And you can opt for either a jury or a bench trial. But sometimes when you plead guilty, is there still a jury present?
1: No, they don't call the jury. If you're going to plead guilty, you plead a pre-trial plea hearing. And so if you enter a plea of not guilty, then it would move to trial. And then if you enter a plea of guilty, then they won't seat a jury unless the parties or the judge agrees. I think in juvenile cases in Texas... It's judges that determine punishment for juveniles. But in adult cases, you can the parties can argue over whether a judge will determine your punishment or a jury. So like my mom did jury duty one time and it was like a kidnapping case, like a, a couple, a husband and wife had kidnapped one of their neighbors basically to rob him. And there was so much evidence that they did do it. There was basically security footage and the cops stopped them and all this stuff. So they pled guilty. But rather than have the judge sentence them or accept the offer that the prosecution gave them which I believe was uh, five years they opted to have a punishment trial basically where my mom was seated on the jury with other jurors and they go through all the evidence of what happened and as my mother says we gave the bitch 25 years <laughs>
2: So because it was egregious they like, kicked this guy They should have taken the yes. the plea deal or maybe had the judge sentence them. but i assume they did that because they thought a jury their peers would be sympathetic. more sympathetic and lenient i will say my friends Y'all didn't know Nancy McKinney was on that jury no, she's the, the, the she's the texas hammer of justice <laughs>
1: i will say my friends that are district attorneys say that they have a wall of fame where they'll have someone's what their charge was, what the DA's office offered them, and then what a jury gave them. And it's always like five times more. The jury does? Yes. Yeah, because they're... For sure. You wasted everybody's time.
2: They're pissed off that they're there. Also, they kind of are having their day in court. Rarely do people get the power... To punish others? To punish someone, especially if it's like a hot-button case like this or something, Mm -hmm. where people are very opinionated and have a lot of feelings about it. Yeah, you don't want just some Joe Schmo off the street being like, well, I'm about to finally get to tell somebody what I think is something. <laughs> you don't know what they've got going on. And, <laughs> and they're personalized.
1: Well, yeah. and also, I think in, in a lot of times if you have a jury determining guilt or innocence and then you have them determining... The punishment that they may consider, well, I'm like 90% sure that they did it, but I'm not like life in prison sure that they did it, so I'll give them whatever, 20 years, versus if someone comes in the court and goes, yep, I did it, I kidnapped a person, what are you going to do to me? They're like, 25 years in jail. Yeah. I just pointed dramatically when I said that. <laughs> 25 years in jail. So, I think it takes a little bit of the burden, the guilty burden off of the juror's mind of they don't feel bad giving someone no. a terrible sentence because they know they did it because you admitted that you did it's
2: it. It's your civil duty to duty duty, to, duty,
1: to, duty, duty. <laughs> to hand down the law yep and that and especially if you don't have to grapple with like what if i'm wrong what if they really didn't do it they're like oh you did do it
2: for real all right go to jail so it's it's hard it's hard as a uh well he he his uh defend, or like you said in in texas he because he was a minor wouldn't have had a jury decide i don't the think punishment so phase, yeah anyways. i don't
1: i think it would it's the judge And frankly, if I was his parents, I would be like, oh,
2: please, oh, please, oh, please let it be a judge. Oh, hell yeah. You don't want a bunch of other parents who are like, what have y'all done? You idiot. Who is this little prick sitting Mm -hmm. here showing zero remorse Mm -hmm. throughout the entire thing? I I, could not have cared less that he was there. It seemed like all of
1: the proceedings to him, it just this is my opinion. It just seemed like it was a hassle. Oh yeah. He seems irritated to be there. The the parents kinda
2: staring off into space. The parents seemed
1: very frustrated, like can't we just write y'all a check? Why are y'all making us sit here? Everybody just seemed like it was very who gives a shit? Why are we here? It's not a big it's a fucking big deal. You killed four people. You paralyzed someone, you stole these lives from these people. It's a huge deal. But they all three of them just treated it like why I don't know why we're all here. Why are we wasting our time here? Such can I
2: just buy this courthouse? Such a, a disconnect. No. It's so, it's, I don't want to say fascinating in a positive in way, in a yeah. positive way, but in a interesting and just, I can't wrap my head around how people can have that mindset. And Disregard as, of how your behavior as parents, if Ella got into an accident and killed four people, I would be horrified. I would love my child and support her. But if she was to blame, I would want her to suffer the consequences that, you know, that's how you, how would, how's anyone going to learn? How's anyone going to grow as a person? I think
1: it's in South Dallas. They just had a shooting at a basketball game, high school basketball game. And the assailant shot a former student that was there. And I uh, last I checked, he was in critical condition, but still alive. And there was video surveillance footage and the cops put it on the news and said, if anybody knows... Guess who walked him into the, the... His mother? His mama walked him into the police station you know and what? said... Good
2: for her. She said,
1: you're going to go in and you're going to tell him what you did and and we're going to settle it. Good and for her. you're going to live up to what you did. But that is... I mean, you have to have respect for her. That is so fucking hard how to do hard? that. hard? Yes. But think about how... A, what he's learning. B, as her as a human being in society, like, this is a person that's caused harm. I have the capacity to stop them from causing harm and also do the right thing and doing it. That's so... It's huge. It's huge. If
2: you know he did that and he knows you know he did that and you do nothing what message does that send him mm-hmm. well I can shoot a kid and my mom ain't gonna you know turn me in or do anything what's after that for sure which is exactly what happened with with Ethan mm-hmm. there were no consequences ever laid out to him if you do something wrong you suffer consequences you own up to it it was if you do something wrong In our eyes, it's not wrong, so fuck everybody else who thinks it is wrong, and we're going to save the day. And write a check. And write a check to these people. And then the check's going to
1: bounce, and I'm going to go to jail (laughs) God. I know, for as rich as these people throw around that they are, I was like, you've been
2: passing bad checks, like, your whole life. In December of 2013, Ethan Couch's sentencing hearing began. Due to the family's wealth, they were able to assemble what ABC News described as a powerhouse legal team complete with expensive expert witnesses. Scott Brown, one of Ethan's defense attorneys, asked the judge for sympathy. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram quoted Brown at trial as saying, What Ethan needed
1: was structure and love. What he got was stuff. Don't reward Ethan because his father has a successful business, but don't punish Ethan because his father has money. People look at the carnage and say, No, he has to be locked up for 15 or 20 years. That's not justice. That's vengeance. No, that's justice. That's justice. When you do a crime and you go to jail for it, that's justice. And a lot of times in America, people don't do crimes. So they go to jail anyway. And that's not justice, but it happens. So in this case, somebody just go to
2: jail. You did it. You Here's said you did thing, it. the thing, too. Um, just because your parents are pieces of shit doesn't mean that you also have to be a piece of shit. A lot of people
1: statistically have shitty parents. <laughs>
2: yeah. I and mean, a lot of nice people that have turned out really well have had had shitty parents and a shitty upbringing yes just because your parents were pieces of shit like i mean i don't know i don't know at nine years old what you could possibly do to to stand up to something like that honestly so yeah he had parents that set him up for failure for sure that does not mean that he shouldn't be held accountable for what he does. Absolutely, and in, in fact, a court of law. In fact, it arguably,
1: he—they're the only—the justice system's the only thing that's going to hold him accountable and help him.
2: Yeah, this is kind of okay. Who's failed him over the years? His parents, this school system, every authority figure, anybody he's ever come in contact with. All right, but here come the big big guns. Here come an actual judge that can do something. And what happens? Or we'll just continue doing what he's known his whole life. One of the aforementioned expert witnesses the defense called was Dr. G. Dick Miller. Dr. Miller introduced what would become known worldwide as the affluenza defense. A combination of the words affluent and influenza, the word was used to explain the reason for the crash. Ultimately, the defense argued that Ethan was so rich so spoiled and never subjected to supervision rules or punishment that he could not have known right from wrong. Uh, if I had a bucket, I'd throw up in it I right have now. No Words. I just have no words. I don't understand
1: how a person who presumably went to school, presumably went to graduate school, presumably
2: has a license. 100% did, or they wouldn't have a license to practice psychology has the, uh, lack of moral turpitude to get on the stage. he said as soon as it came out of his mouth he regretted it but you can't unring that bell it's fair it's and that fair. bell ended up getting rung from all the mountaintops across the land i mean it's it took off in quite a way dr miller claimed that although ethan was mentally advanced at 16 he had the intelligence of an 18 year old he was emotionally about age 12. This meant that he had no rational link between his actions and their consequences. That's like every man. I have a nephew that's 13, and I promise you he knows right from wrong. For sure. So 12 years old, a lot of 12-year-olds know what what they do is right and what is wrong. I
1: think that the argument completely falls apart that he doesn't know right from wrong when... In his unconscious state, Mm -hmm. Corbin's like, hey, man, you feeling okay?" And he goes, don't worry, I'll get us out of this. Getting out, the implication is that there's some trouble that you've gotten into. Ergo, you know what you did was
2: wrong and you shouldn't have done it. Yeah. So I don't. I don't give a fuck what planet you're from. (laughs) If you if you flip over your dad's truck, you see bloody human body parts all over the fucking road people moaning and screaming every it's complete chaos no matter if you've lived in a bubble you know innately this is wrong what i did was wrong this is a tragic situation it's my
1: thing is, is he knows right from wrong. He just doesn't like consequences. No.
2: And, that's and he's not, never been given any. So he really doesn't even know what the consequences would be. No, I mean, well, he's
1: been given them, but he disregards them. And then there's no consequences for him disregarding it. And again, my I'll get into it a little later. But I think that the argument that he doesn't know right from wrong is completely empty based on his behavior when he's caught doing stuff.
2: Yeah. If he he knows what's right and wrong. This isn't his first brush with no, the law. No. When that cop walks in, up on him pissing with the naked girl in his truck. He obviously knows he did something wrong or the police wouldn't be there for sure. And I, I think he's written a ticket, you know, mm-hmm. for, so he knows that the things he's doing are are wrong because the police get involved and the police get involved when you commit a crime he's been he's pled before a court
1: before he pled no contest you get it if I drink that is illegal that is wrong and I get a ticket
2: if you want to plead this bullshit defense do it the first time he gets in trouble that's true not the 27th after he's killed four fucking people yeah he I just don't think it's it doesn't it doesn't stand up well this defense of course was bullshit According to the assistant criminal district attorney Richard Alpert, the reasoning that Ethan committed this heinous crime due to privilege and wealth was ridiculous. In an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, world-renowned psychologist Dr. Drew Pinsky said, "It's a cute, clever twist of phrase that the psychologist should be ashamed of himself for having brought into the courtroom,
1: and even more shameful is the judge for having fallen for that nonsense." God, I love Dr. Drew. He's so hot.
2: He's a silver he's fox. So hot. He, Tommy has a man crush on oh, he's been Drew. a. Oh, yeah, I don't doubt it. He's been a silver fox since ne- the he, love line. He also, so is Anderson Cooper. Oh, yeah. Those two in an interview. <sighs> Whoa, yeah. Get turn me up, a freaking something wet to put around my neck. You say, turn up the AC. <laughs> I'm sweating over they're here. They're both so fine. He's also extremely good at his job. Oh, yeah. He's compassionate. He's caring. He knows his stuff. And so for him to flat out call out a fellow psychologist and be like you should be ashamed of yourself absolutely this guy should how much money were you getting paid as this expert witness I wonder to come up with this ridiculous and laughable defense I think you and I have had this discussion of how
1: much money would it take for you to lie or fake something like that it's and just, we both said we don't no, have no.
2: there's no you can never get that integrity back no and that's all you have at the end of the day yeah it, in the end in the end What matters but who you were. Yeah. And and what your name goes down in history. Yeah. And all of these people's names are going to go down tied to this case. Yeah. Well, the prosecution asked for 20 years as punishment for this egregious crime, well below the maximum they could have requested 20 years for each count. However, Ethan Couch was sentenced to just 10 years of probation for the four lives he took and the countless others that he ruined. I'm going to repeat that 10 years of probation for killing four, paralyzing one and grievously injuring another six people. Ten, not no jail time. Uh-uh. Probation. Uh-uh. It's he's 16 by 26, which is you still got your whole life ahead of you. He may have had he's good behavior. With probation.
1: Yeah, if they, if they would have given him jail time,
2: he may have had good behavior and got out
1: earlier. But
2: 10 years, he <sighs> may have also learned something. I don't know. A trade, perhaps. or <laughs> Just not to be a complete this is a person of
1: shit. That just needs to be completely kept from alcohol.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Judge Boyd also claimed that she didn't believe Ethan would receive the rehabilitation he needed in a juvenile detention facility. One, the prosecution was requesting to which he be sent. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Judge Boyd said at the time of sentencing, Ethan, you are responsible for what you did, not your parents.
1: The court is familiar with the Texas Juvenile Justice Department and has sent numerous teens to programs there. And sometimes they don't even get in the program we designated for them.
2: So let's analyze this. Ethan, you are responsible for what you did, not your parents. Doesn't seem like it, according to her sentencing. Yeah. Yeah. Then it seems like that's kind of a hypocritical statement that he's uh, she may hold him responsible, but she's got a little bit of a different view on how to show it. Yes. Well, therefore, in addition to the 10 years probation, Ethan was to attend the Newport Academy in California, a private rehabilitation center described by the Daily Mail as a luxury resort. The Newport Academy offers basketball, a swimming pool and six acres of land. The CEO describes the place as like a comfortable home. And with activities and amenities like mixed martial arts, massage and cooking classes, it's no wonder why. The exclusive facility only accepts a maximum of six patients annually and charges four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year to attend. This sounds like uh. A resort? Sounds, sounds like a vacation. I'd love
1: to go on. I would love to. I've never been to a place that nice.
2: <laughs> no, never. <laughs> so fancy. Uh, I mean, kind of makes everyone want to get a drug addiction so we can experience this this magical wonderland. Although, $450,000 a year. That's, yikes. <laughs> it's crazy. I went to this website. Yes, it's the photos. The photos, I I gave me pause because... It's all a bunch of... I mean, they. I'm sure they are very, very wealthy kids. I can't imagine their actual patients. I'm going to say... Models? I'm going to say they're models. Okay. They'll look very happy. Very just, you know, we're on a hike. Nothing could go wrong. It's... I don't know. I, I, I hope that the kids that go there get what they're needing out of it. I also like that it's called the Newport Academy, not like a facility. Exactly. Or a center. On some level... You're teaching these kids that, like, we can put a spin on this mm-hmm. and put a Band-Aid over it and and make it, you know, um, we don't, it doesn't have to sound as bad as it it's really is. not so is. bad. Sometimes things should sound as bad as they are because that's the only way you're going to get slapped in the face with reality and change your life. You need to take your medicine. You got to hit, like they always say on intervention, until somebody hits rock bottom, there's nothing you can do to help them. Mm-hmm. And if you're not allowing someone To hit rock bottom, they're just going to keep going back to their old ways. This is going to keep cycling. Upon Judge Boyd issuing her sentencing, the courtroom erupted. According to Cowtown Crime, Ethan Boyles, who had lost both his wife and daughter in the blink of an eye, said, Money always seems to keep Ethan Couch out of trouble. Ultimately today, I felt
1: that money did prevail. If he had been any other youth, I feel like the circumstances would have been different. I feel like that is correct. I would agree with him, that poor man. That you watch a slippery shit get away once again. In this case, he's getting away with taking your whole family.
2: When all y'all did was try and offer a helping hand. Mm -hmm. Your daughter's home from nursing school, and you're all probably watching TV. You hear something, Mm -hmm. you go outside to help, and then the blink of an eye, your whole life is ripped away from you. I can't believe it when interviewed by 2020 prosecutor Richard Alpert said there can be no doubt
1: that he will be in another courthouse one day blaming the lenient treatment he received here when asked how justice could have been served Alpert replied justice would have been served if the system had held him accountable mic drop Alpert knows what's up he tried though I mean can you imagine having to go and look those family and the families in the face and say I'm so sorry I tried so hard I tried so hard
2: In June of 1979, Ted Bundy was tried for the murders of Chi Omega sorority sisters, Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. The trial was reported on throughout the world, with about 250 reporters covering it from five continents. This was also the first trial to be televised nationally in the United States. You know, he just loved that. Oh, yes. He probably uh, asked for it. Facing murder charges and a potential death sentence, Bundy was provided with five court-appointed attorneys. But because he was a complete arrogant idiot, decided to handle most of his own defense. Can you imagine being assigned to him, and he's like, "No, no, no, I no, got this." No, I'm sure they're like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" You didn't even go to law school in Florida. They all said that they were so irritated by him because he wanted to say in everything he thought he was the smartest person in the room. They're trying to help him, and he keeps making it difficult for them to help him.
1: Yeah, my, Mike Minerva, one of the attorneys, just said he just wanted his. He wanted to be right. Yeah. He didn't care if it would save his life. He, he just wanted, wanted to be, to be right. right. Yeah. He wanted control. He wanted to control these five
2: lawyers. Judge Edward Cowart, the presiding judge, allowed Ted to be his own co-counsel, which was a, quote, fiction, according to his actual attorneys, considering Ted Bundy not only was not a lawyer, but never even finished law school. Yeah, he didn't even go to law school in Florida. He didn't even finish much past, I how believe. How did he, how, if he didn't go to law school in Florida and he wasn't licensed, how was this even legal? Ding, 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 ding. That's so, a great question. He, what? You can represent yourself. So you just I could represent myself, easily. even never
1: have being a lawyer. Yes,
2: correct. You all, we all have the right to be stupid. But he couldn't represent someone everybody else everybody
1: has a right to be stupid and that includes and my god yourself. do they exercise <laughs> take advantage but no you're allowed to represent yourself i would say in something even i think in something as simple as a traffic ticket it's stupid to represent yourself there are people who yeah for 50 to 75 i'm not gonna perform surgery on myself thank you i mean i have eradicated my own kidney stones but that was just due to uh financial i'm just kidding no i would never <laughs> do cranberry that. juice. i'm not an insane person i uh, when yeah. i was a kid we didn't even yank my own teeth out unless not- they were very loose. Oh, I did yank my own teeth out if they were loose. If they're loose, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, you wouldn't say, "Oh, I've got a cavity up there." See if we can no, get a drill. Oh my god! In there. See if we can reach up there with a drill. No. I don't even.
2: I, I mean, anything I take, I would rather pay someone that knows what they're doing to do it than try and do it myself. Exactly. And he had this idea that he was a genius. He was con- in control and wanted to be in control. Well, he looks- also was probably worried what they might find out about him once they do start doing some digging he had complete control over the story and what was going to come out if he was the one doing it and you'll see the attorneys have
1: one idea of what a nice rational end to this could be and he sure just
2: takes a big piss what do they say it's a bold move cotton let's see if it works out for him Mm -hmm. tallahassee public defender mike minerva was one of those five attorneys on ted's defense team the team secured a pre-trial plea bargain ...wherein Bundy would plead guilty to killing Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman at the Chi Omega House and Kimberly Leach in Orlando. In exchange, Bundy would avoid the death penalty and receive a 75-year prison sentence. Not long enough. No, God. Prosecutors were eager to proceed with the plea because they desperately wanted Ted behind bars... ...and prospects of losing at trial were very good due to lack of evidence. Ted, on the other hand, wanted the plea for other reasons. He planned to wait until multiple years had gone by... Until victims' memories were fuzzy and evidence had been lost, and moved to have the plea set aside. I don't know that that would work. So, what does that mean exactly? He would.
1: I think he would argue either that he didn't have the mental capacity to plea at the time, which is an argument that they made later. So, say he pleads. He pleads guilty. Mm-hmm. 15 years go by, he gets an appeal,
2: he files an appeal saying and, he was coerced into doing it or
1: something like or that. Correct, or saying, oh, uh, you know, a psychologist said that I, you know, didn't understand what I was doing, I wasn't mentally competent, whatever, so then they would set the, set aside the plea, have another trial. By the time that trial came around, the witnesses... Right. Mean, I mean, who knows? Be, they could all be dead by that if point. If they're not all dead, then you get up, up on the stand and you say, okay, Miss uh, you know Karen Kleiner, you were uh, attacked at this sorority house 25 years yeah. ago. Do you remember who did it? Oh, that guy. Well, how can you be sure it's 25 yeah, years yeah. ago? You know, and, kind of, and say, okay, well, we have his the chances for his getting out go up. Maybe after the that.
2: photos get lost of mm-hmm. the victims, things like that. Well, at the last minute, just when Bundy was expected to plead guilty, he panicked and refused to plead. Defense attorney Mike Minerva believes that after professing his innocence so vigorously, Bundy couldn't stomach the thought of standing up in front of the whole world and admitting he was a murderer. And so the trial continued. I think that Carol Ann Boone and Liz
1: and his mom and everybody sort of believed in him. And I thought I think that the idea of copping to it,
2: he had he would have had to run away with his tail between his legs. That wasn't his style. He wasn't about he just was so dug in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Yeah. At trial, two of the victim's sorority sisters provided damning testimony. First, Connie Hastings testified that she saw Ted Bundy in the vicinity of the Chi Omega house that evening. Next, Nita Neary testified that she actually saw Ted leave the sorority house with the murder weapon, the piece of oak firewood. So these were both very helpful. Yes. Prosecutors introduced several pieces of incriminating physical evidence, including impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttock. An enlarged photograph of the bite marks was put before the jury, and the prosecutors called forensic dentist Richard Sovereign and Lowell Levine, who were able to match the bite marks to castings of Bundy's teeth. It's a particularly dramatic scene in the Jack Efron movie, yes. where they hold him down
1: to take the teeth castings.
2: Yeah, in the Ted Bundy tapes, the sheriff at the time says he went into Bundy's cell in the middle of the night said hey you're coming with me wake up bitch you're my new best friend and Bundy did not like this mm-hmm. he took him out he thinks Bundy believed he was going to kill him oh that wow. he was the sheriff of the town he was just going to put an end to this and you know what him, yeah <laughs> do it he put him in the back of a van Took him to another location. And when they got out, there was a dental chair there and a bunch of uh, dentists and people in white coats. And he said, Bundy flipped out, said, You don't, I, I, I'm not consenting to this. You don't have the legal right to do this. My lawyer isn't present. And the sheriff said, "Uh, The fuck, we don't. Lay back, bitch. Yeah. We, and put him in the chair. And he said, Almost immediately, Bundy's complete demeanor changed and he flipped and just put on that charming, Personality and said, Sheriff, you know you don't need to do this. You know I'm not a violent person and you do what you got to do. And like laid back. And but he lost control for a minute mm-hmm. and everyone saw the true person within him, which is like, you
1: son of a And then he
2: realized I I'm out cool. of control. I got to rein it back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet that's his whole life is balancing that rage mm-hmm. monster versus yeah, this. Yeah, that's why he drank slick. so much. Yeah. Mm hmm on july 24th 1979 the jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting ted bundy of the murders of lisa levy and margaret bowman they also returned guilty verdicts on three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on the other women in the sorority house and two accounts of burglary judge cowart sentenced bundy to death for the murder convictions.
1: A listener sent us a message on Instagram and let us know that one of her co-workers was one of the jurors in the Bundy trial. Oh, wow. And she said that, <laughs> but Ted Bundy thought he was buddy-buddy with the jury and he would have to go near the jury box to look at evidence and would say hey, how's it going? Mm-hmm. How's, how's the weather out there? And the jurors were like, get away from us, you creep. Just trying to so use I, that charm to win I over. I think in his mind he was being slick, yeah. but the jury was like, get the hint, R.
2: Kelly, get away from yeah. our Chili's table. Yeah. We do not want to talk to you. You're a creep. Exactly. In January of 1980, Ted stood trial for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach in Orlando. Ted did not fare well at this trial either, due to eyewitnesses who put him at the scene of Kimberly's abduction and, in fact, saw him lead her away to his van. Call the police if you see him a kid in a van. God, don't come out years later saying, Oh, yeah, I saw that. After deliberating for less than eight hours, a jury once again found Ted Bundy guilty. You done goofed. Stop representing yourself. Always a showboater. Bundy decided to take advantage of an obscure Florida law during the penalty phase of the trial. The law stated that if a declaration of marriage is made in court in the presence of a judge, the marriage is legal. It's like bankruptcy if you just yell it, if you declare <laughs> yeah. it. I, I declare bankruptcy. It. I declared it. As Bundy was questioning Carol Ann Boone, his former DES co-worker and loyal confidant and supporter who had moved to Florida to be near him during the trial. Let's repeat that. She moved to Florida. Uprooted her life and moved there because she believed so strongly in this man. Man. During the questioning, he asked her to marry him. She accepted. And under Florida law, they were legally married. In October of 1981, Carol Ann would give birth to a daughter. She claimed was fathered by Bundy. Another gratuitous moment in the Zach Efron movie
1: is him making love to uh, banging.
2: I would say banging if you're is doing better. It, I think if you're doing it against a Coke machine, it's banging. It's banging. And yeah. It seemed pretty aggressive. Uh-huh. They did not have conjugal visits in prison, but it was well known that you could pay off the guards to turn the other cheek and, and, let and you do your sneak thing. sneak away behind the yeah. phantom machine. Yeah. Ted's execution was scheduled for July 2nd, 1986. But before it could be carried out, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals issued an indefinite stay and remanded the case for review based on Ted's mental competency to stand trial and an erroneous jury instruction issued in the penalty phase. At the time of trial, Judge Coward had instructed the jury that they were required to break a six to six tie between sentencing Ted to death or life in prison. So that hadn't been done. Correct. The tie had not been broken,
1: and well, that's why went, they. Well, there was a tie, and then he said, "Go back and resolve it." And if they, if the jury says we're hung, you have to say, "Okay, you're hung." We'll get, but th- it wouldn't have changed. So his... he wouldn't accept that they were hung and said, "No, you're going to go back, back and, and figure and do it. out." Yeah. And they said, because of that, it... he kind of coerced, them, yeah, you okay. know, and so, not really, but that was the argument. And I, at the what theoretically. Arguably, should have been done is if the jury does say we are at an irreconcilable point of contention, we cannot, then you would have to seat a new jury.
2: Mm. But and they didn't want to go through all that. Well,
1: again. exactly. You want to go through all that. It would not have done anything to his actual conviction. He still would have been convicted. But if you have to seat a new jury, you had to go through four diaries, it can take forever. And then you'd have to basically present a redo the whole entire trial. Yeah. For the penalty phase. And that's the, the judge is like, we're not fucking around with that. Yeah. Don't do it. But Which, by the way, if you see, I'm telling you, the Bundy tapes, Judge Cowart sounds like Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> I believe you all can resolve this amongst yeah. yourselves. He Please sounds like a very Florida judge. Not like John Malkovich. <laughs> no, he doesn't. That was odd casting. Not even a little bit. He also looks like Kevin from The
2: Office, not John Malkovich. <laughs> <laughs> While the execution had been stayed for the Chi Omega murders, Ted was still scheduled to be executed for the murder of Kimberly Leach. His new death date was set for November 18th, 1986. Yet again, the 11th Circuit issued a stay at the last minute, saving Ted's life. After nearly two more years of appeals, the 11th Circuit finally ruled against Ted on all outstanding arguments. Ted's final hope was an appeal to the Supreme Court. That hope was dashed when the Supreme Court denied a motion to review the 11th Circuit's ruling. It was a 5-4 ruling, so it's pretty narrow. Wow. After that last ruling, Ted's definitive execution date was set for January 24th, 1989. Reading a couple of
1: the dissents, I didn't read all of them, but it was general opposition to the death penalty oh, okay. justice brennan believes believes that the death penalty in all cases was cruel and unusual punishment in the violation of the uh, eighth amendment mm-hmm.
2: so it wasn't anything it's not like they they thought it. he was innocent by any means no, no no yeah although some complained that ted's appeals process allowed him to live a long life after being sentenced to death it was actually on track for the time ted had been convicted in july of 1979 and february 1980 respectively The final vote of the Supreme Court came January 23rd, 1989. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the average time spent on death row before execution in 1985 was 71 months or just less than six years. Today, it is approximately 16 years. It takes a long time for to get through the appeals process. So he
1: was on death row for about 10 years. It was maybe a little bit longer than the time, but it was by no means insanely long I mean, it right. wasn't like they were the courts had it like favor for him or his lawyers were doing delay tactics it was pretty expedient
2: on the same day good was found guilty the judge also ruled that amanda and raffaele would also have to stand trial on charges of sexual assault and murder on January 16, 2009, the trial of Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solicito opened in Perugia before presiding judge Giancarlo Massai. On June 12, 2009, Amanda took the stand and testified, saying she had not seen Meredith since the afternoon before her murder, provided an alibi for the night of the murder, and the police had beat her into making a false statement. Despite both her and Raffaele's pleas of innocence, on December 26, 2009, an eight-member jury convicted both of them on charges of sexual assault and murder and sentenced Amanda to 26 years in an Italian prison and Raffaele to 25. Let's be fair. The DNA evidence that was presented, or the evidence that was
1: presented, which was supposedly the knife from Raffaele's house that had Amanda's DNA on the handle, which makes sense because she dated him and was at his house, but that also supposedly had Meredith's DNA on the blade, was presented to the jury, mm-hmm. and they presented the bra clasp bra clasp that supposedly had Raffaele's DNA on the clasp. Yes. So the jury... As you like to say, shit the bed. I do like but to say that. They were given this they evidence. They were given this evidence, yes. Which this would not have been admissible evidence in yes. the United States. I did. didn't I did not think this would turn into an, an episode of me being super patriotic. <laughs> and let me tell you. I can't wait to get all these Italian DMs. <laughs> we're gonna a lot. Let me tell you, the United States prison industrial complex is a nightmare and oh, does yeah. a lot of
2: bad things. One hundred percent. I still believe in the constitution when it's applied properly. <laughs> During this time, Patrick Lumumba also sued Amanda for defamation of character for saying he was the one guilty of the murder. I mean, that's a fair... uh, Yeah, no, I mean, I think he has every right to do that. She was ordered to pay 22,000 euros to him for compensation. Three years later, on November 24th, 2010, the appeals trial for both Amanda and Raffaele began. The lawyers were claiming key evidence in the case had been mishandled, and the judge ordered that the knife found at Raffaele's apartment and Meredith's bra class were to be re-examined for DNA.
1: Yeah, she was there... Her parents would come and visit. Her parents were split up. She had a stepmom and a stepdad, too. And they all rented one apartment in Perugia and would take turns visiting her. Mm. And they said she said both of her parents mortgaged their houses and worked, you know, constantly to pay for her defense and, to you know, pay for all the trips back and forth. Mm
2: -hmm. She also had two younger sisters. Yes. Dr. Stefano Conti and Dr. Carla Vecchiati. Both independent forensic experts were brought in to re-examine these key pieces of evidence. Conti reviewed the police tapes of the crime scene and quickly realized it had not been secured or kept sterile. Yeah. People were coming and going, protective booties weren't changed, leading to cross-contamination, and gloves hadn't been changed between handling pieces of evidence. In
1: the... Prosecutions questioning—they—they they got questioned. Some of the police officers got questioned, especially this female police officer, who was key in sl- basically slapping Amanda a lot, and then also contaminating the crime scene. She shit the bed. Is she the one that kicked down the door? I think or so. the window. Yeah, yeah, she was nuts. They had video tapes of the uh, all of the people in the crime scene wearing gloves and touching everything with the same gloves and picking stuff up off the ground and moving it and putting it down and picking it up, and the person her uh amanda's lawyer was questioning her and said was this single-use gloves or were they multi-use gloves and she said what are you talking about it was basically these international standards for forensics and for crime scene investigation were being totally ignored and she said they were they were single-use gloves and he said okay so you took the gloves off every single time you touched another piece of evidence and she said no Hmm.
2: and you're really supposed to do that absolutely Vecchiati was tasked with taking a fresh look at the knife and bra clasp. Upon re-examining what authorities had thought to be the murder weapon, Vecchiati discovered that while Amanda's DNA profile on the handle was strong, Meredith's DNA on the blade was so scarce that it was most likely a case of contamination. Vecchiati asked the lab if they had examined the knife completely by itself and was told that it had been examined at the same time they were also examining 50 of Meredith's samples. Oh, my. Vecchiati now believed that Meredith's DNA on the knife was 100% due to contamination and therefore inconclusive. So they just had all sorts of stuff just out on this table that transfer DNA is just jumping from one thing to the next. And you can't keep it straight. No. Raffaele's DNA had been found on Meredith's bra clasp, which did seem suspicious. However, Vecchiati learned the bra clasp had been found. 46 days after the murder, under a rug in Meredith's bedroom. Because trace DNA is so easily transferred, it is quite possible the crime scene not being secure and the shoddy work by the police led to contamination. She also found that two other unknown males' DNA were on the clasp, but police never noted it as evidence. In the Netflix documentary... And once again reminds us that DNA is objective and cannot be cherry-picked to support a theory. And
1: this is when he's on the stand and being cross-examined by the prosecution, who's obviously kind of trying to de- defend themselves. They said, show us, show us in this video exactly when it got transferred. Show us whenever it got contaminated. And he said, there's like eight people with very dirty gloves. He said, you can see in the video mm-hmm. that it's literally just funk on their gloves and they're picking, they lift the rug, they pick the bra clasp up, and eight different people in this one very short uh, period of time were sitting there touching it back and forth. And he said, it's not up to me to tell you when it was contaminated. It's up to you to show me that it wasn't contaminated. And you can, you can't do that now. Because he said from the instant it was found, it was manhandled by people with just dirty gloves on. And all I can imagine is just a blue latex glove, just smudged with Mm -hmm. just dark colors. And The prosecution was very obviously they were incensed and very defensive of their police tactics, which here's the thing, man. Italy is a completely modern country, and I'm sure 99.999% of the time they are fantastic at their jobs. But this particular crew that was jacking around in there really, really messed up. They
2: completely destroyed this evidence is the burden of proof. In Italy, do you know if it's on the prosecution or on the defense? In
1: Italy, up until 1989, they had what was called an inquisitorial system, which is what happened way back in the day in England, too. And you hear about like the Star Court and whenever you would be thrust before an unfair judge and a prosecutor, and they were working together, basically, and you had to prove that you were innocent versus Mm -hmm. in the US. And that's why our founding fathers set up the system like they did, because they knew the inherent unfairness of the system. But in 1989, the Italian system changed to more similar to the US, where the judge is becomes an impartial reviewer of the facts, and the prosecutor is then the one that's trying to prove the, OK, beyond reasonable so the doubt burden of
2: proof is still on, it the, goes prosecution. on the prosecutor. There's okay. a
1: couple of differences. So in Italy, you don't have to take an oath and promise that you tell the truth when you take the stand as a defendant. And then there's no actual in Italy. There's no actual trial by peers option. Usually the trial is decided by a panel of judges. But as in this case, the judge will appoint two judges and then six citizens. So that's why they said a jury of eight Okay, convicted her. And usually in in the U.S., as with the O.J. Simpson case, when it's a super high profile media, they said Amanda Knox's case was on TV. She said when she was in prison, her TV, she was, her face was on her own TV all the time. Yeah. And so in the U.S., you would sequester the jury, which means they're trapped in a hotel room and they can't watch TV and their minds can't be warped by what's yeah. going on in the Influenced. media. But in Italy, they don't have sequester sequestration. They don't they do not sequester the lay judges until the deliberations phase. So that means the people that are presiding over the case are listening to the media and taking in information from multiple angles and not just what they're hearing in the courtroom. The media that has
2: completely vilified and slut shamed Amanda and has already in the in their eyes, she's already been tried and hanged. Yes. And you have to have a unanimous
1: verdict, although in the US, otherwise it's a hung jury. And in Italy, just has to be a majority. Don't even have to have all of them. Oof. So it's pretty tough. Also, the, the deal is a bunch of judges have been on the bench for multiple decades, and they're used to the more inquisitorial style system where they're kind of on the prosecutor's side. Right. So even though the law changed in the late 80s, maybe not all judges necessarily view their new role in that way. They That's maybe still point. think the old way.
2: Yeah. Well, based on this new evidence provided by Vecchiati and Conti, the court ruled that the original DNA evidence was unreliable. And on October 3rd, 2011, four years after Meredith's brutal murder, Amanda and Raffaele's convictions were overturned and the judge ordered for them to be released immediately. While most of Italy was outraged and felt justice had not been served, Amanda was elated and immediately flew back home to Seattle where she issued a tearful news conference at the airport, thanking everyone that had stood by her over the years.
1: Yeah, she said that she had just finished seeing the priest that she was best friends with and went back to her cell. And by the time she got back to her cell, it had been on TV and her roommates told her. And she said I, she went and asked the guard, can you please let me go back down and t- talk to the priest? because I want to tell him my good news. And he said, see, I told you, you just had to have faith. You just had to believe. Mm. And then she ended up going home.
2: However, the nightmare was not yet over. On March 26, 2013, an Italian court threw out Amanda and Raffaele's acquittal, this time citing circumstantial evidence, including Amanda's bizarre behavior and past intimate relationships. That's on evidence. This new guilty verdict would be appealed to Italy's Supreme Court. And the smart folks on Italy's Supreme Court... <laughs> In September 2015, the Italian Supreme Court said that, quote, stunning flaws in the investigation and the media creating a, quote, frantic search for guilty parties led to the decision to exonerate both Amanda and Raffaele and found a complete lack of biological traces connecting them to the murder. See, they're smart. They
1: looked at evidence and they didn't just, it get only took eight wrapped, years. Didn't just get wrapped up like this
2: Manini guy in proving himself right. The court went on to say that all the evidence pointed to Rudy Guede being guilty of murdering Meredith Kircher. After eight long years, Amanda Raffaele and their families were finally free. Sadly, Meredith's family, convinced of Amanda's guilt and wanting to see her back in prison, were left heartbroken and without closure. So while Meredith's family was convinced of Amanda's guilt, Gade's prison cell inmate painted a different picture.
1: Yes, he testified as well. And Amanda covers this all in her memoir. This man was named Alessi, and he said that he was out in the prison. Yard. And that Gide approached him and said, hey, you've been in here for a while. What would be the negative parts of me just telling the truth? And unless he said, well, I'm not a lawyer, but it's always good to tell the truth. What do you want to tell the truth about? And Gaday said, well, I want to tell the truth about what really happened that day. And he claims that he, he and a friend saw Meredith at a bar a few days earlier And she saw them, said hi or whatever, but nothing came of it. He said he and his friend on November 1st decided to go to her house. They knocked on her door and she invited them in just to visit because she recognized them. And they sat on her couch and in some very explicit terms, they asked her if she would have a three-way with them. She said, no, obviously not. Get out of my house. G'day said, well, is it okay if I use your bathroom? He says he goes to the bathroom because he ate a bad kebab and he was sick. Goes to the bathroom. Comes out, and when he comes out, his friend has her laying on the ground and has her arms pinned behind her head. This part is where it takes a turn. G'day says he straddles her and immediately starts masturbating onto her. Escalates very quickly. He said they're turning her around. They're sexually assaulting her. And the friend is trying to assault her from the front while Gade has his knee in the in her back. And she's viciously fighting them. And that's when his friend pulls out a knife with an ivory handle that's smaller than the knife that was found in Raphael's apartment, which the police later found an impression of this knife in her bed sheet and realized that the one from Raphael's apartment was too big. And the friend pulls out the knife and starts threatening her. And when she's thrashing about, it cuts her on her chin, which explains those cuts. The friend then is holding the knife so close to her that when she really tries to get up, it cuts her throat. Again, this is what Gade is saying. I think he's a big
2: fan of partial confessions. I don't think there was a friend. The Well, and even if there was, the slashes on her throat were described as someone that did not know what they were doing. Yeah. And tried several times to slash her throat but wasn't hitting the main arteries yeah and just hitting bone and then eventually they did cut a main artery But that it would have taken about 10 minutes for her to bleed out. So she was suffering for quite
1: a while. Well, he says that the friend accidentally nicked her and she started bleeding a lot. And that Rudy, he tried to help her. He said he grabbed some clothes and tried to hold her down and hold the wound down. But she was still fighting. And he says his friend told him, well, we have to finish her off. Otherwise, she's going to call the police and we're going to rot in jail. So then he says his friend stabbed her to death exactly what you said and that Rudy felt really bad so he covered her up the friend ran off Rudy covered her up Rudy left met his friend at a bar the friend said you need to leave the country you need to go to Germany which is where Rudy went here's some money and Rudy said I think it was money that he stole from Meredith because that was another of the police theories was it was some sort of money fight because 300 euro were missing from Meredith's stuff and then Rudy said he went to Germany and didn't hear from his friend anymore I think And the Alessi guy was found to be a credible witness. He testified. And I think this was G'day's way of confessing what happened. Very similar to Mr. OJ Simpson. I think it, I don't think there was a friend. You know how OG says, Oh, my Mm -hmm. friend Charlie was with Mm -hmm. me. That's a way. I think that's, you can tell me, you know, more about psychology than me. I think it's a way for someone to personify this. Evil part of them that did this crime mm-hmm. that it, that happened exactly what, what the way Rudy said except for him going to the bathroom and coming out and finding her. I think he opened he was in visiting with her, propositioned her for for sex, and when she was struggling, he held her down and then he killed her. Yeah,
2: it's a way of disassociating from it so you're you can actually function. Yeah, you your push, brain doesn't go crazy. Push the culpability off mm-hmm. onto
1: an imaginary friend. Yeah, so I think that's what if. You know, we always say, what do we think happened? I think, I mean, we, first of all, we know Rudy Gaudet did it. He did it, period. His DNA is on the crime scene. When you watch the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix, they do a diagram of Meredith Kircher's room and where all the DNA was. All it's It's all all over over the room.
2: And while there were two unknown male DNAs on the bra clasp, again, could have been transfer DNA from all of the officers people walking around. Also. It could have just been another dude's DNA that had yeah. nothing to do with this. Cause it was under the rug for 46 yeah, days. Exactly. Or I mean, it's on her bra from who knows when, you yeah. know? And at the end of
1: the day, like you said, people forgot about Meredith and what mm-hmm. happened to her. And it was, she was brutally assaulted, brutally, brutally mm-hmm. killed by a hor- a person who escalated. He started out snatching bags, then he started breaking and entering, then he breaks in and, and escalates to sexual assault. And people
2: that knew him in the neighborhood said, He did a lot of cocaine. He would get real crazy when he was on those drugs that he had been playing basketball with some friends and then stopped. And they thought that maybe he stopped because he started showing some signs of mental illness. This guy. Absolutely. I think he did it. If somebody was a real Sherlock Holmes, they would have known that from the beginning. Yeah. It's pretty crazy that he also had 16 years and And half of that's gone now. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be out. Horrifying. He'll be out. Not not too long from now horrifying well where are the other ones in 2014 amanda knox graduated college and now advocates for the wrongfully convicted she recently partnered with broadly a division of vice that focuses on women to launch a facebook watch series called the scarlet letter reports which focuses on women that have been victims of slut shaming online harassment Revenge porn, or any of the hundred other ways the media can humiliate or demonize a woman simply by being a woman. God, I love how you write," (laughs) she said. She still deals with harassment on her character on a regular daily basis. She's really become she is fantastic.
1: And and when in her interview on Megyn Kelly, she points out as far as she she does a lot of stuff for slut shaming and women, but she also does a ton of work for the wrongfully convicted. Yeah, and she points out that. She said normally the wrongfully convicted is going to be a young African-American man who gets totally bulldozed by the system.
2: And and, doesn't have the funds to hire the the right people. Exactly.
1: and Or the privilege even. I mean, in this case, it it sort of swung against her being a pretty white girl. They said, oh, she must be a slut. I Mm -hmm. mean, you can't win. And she talked about that, too, about as far as females being demonized. She said when she cried, Manini would be like, oh, you're just manipulative. You're just crying. Mm -hmm. So she said, Okay, I have to be strong. I can't cry. And he's like, look at her. She's
2: not even crying. Mm -hmm. She's a robot. She doesn't have any feelings. She couldn't win. No, And she says that the a young black man that's typically the one that is mm-hmm. villainized, it's because of his race. Yes. Because she was a young, white, college-educated woman. They used the one thing that the media will use against women, and that is their sexuality. Yep, absolutely. And they 100% did that. They created this monster that they wanted to be able to lock away. And instead of looking at the evidence, they just painted this picture of her being a sex crazed woman that that would kill her roommate over a guy she'd been dating for five days. When you say it out loud, it's so insane Yeah, that it got to the point that for eight years she was in an Italian prison for something she didn't do. I just want to say again, if you say they also said when you said there was a
1: potential satanic ritual, when they come through Raffaele's past, he had downloaded one Marilyn Manson song. <laughs> oh, good Jesus. and Manini was like, "Well, that shows there right is. there." He was <laughs> there obviously a Satan worshipper.
2: We love providing sinisterhood to you at no cost. So, if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show.
1: As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode. In December, it's going to be the Murdoch family update. Alec Murdoch is going to trial, so we're going to talk about that. And we also have patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Emma the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And our patrons in the Getting Into It tier are able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they're going to see us live stream. This month's live stream for the bonus content is December 29th at 8 p.m. Central.
2: You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. This month's Q&A is December 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time.
1: For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership.
2: For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner.
1: So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. We have an all-new t-shirt with the Sinisterhood logo on it just in time for the holidays. We also have mugs totes clothes for your kiddos hoodies beanies and more to keep you warm and toasty this season visit sinisterhead.com and click shop on the top banner to buy yours today
2: and if you are having issues in canada with the t-shirt this has since been fixed so uh, we absolutely want to ship to you guys and it was just a, a little problem on the back end but it's been fixed so you can order those shirts now the best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner. And share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting SinisterHood.com slash playlist. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure.
1: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterHoodPod and like us on Facebook at SinisterHood. We're also on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. Christy, where are you at?
2: I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on the
1: flaming dumpster fire that is now Twitter, the remnants at <laughs> MCK vs. the World. And I am on TikTok and Instagram at Heather vs. the World.
2: As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.
0: Sinister.